Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am covering in this audio 3 John, the whole chapter, the whole book, verses 1 through 15. We start in verse 1. The elder to my dear friend Gaius, I love you in the truth. Well, before we discuss that verse, let's talk about who the author of this book is. It's obviously John the Apostle, who's the brother of James and the son of Zebedee, one of the original 12 apostles of Jesus, the same author of Second John, same author of 1 John, same author of the Gospel of John, the same guy who wrote the book of Revelation. Notice the salutations of Second and Third John are almost identical. The elder, colon, to, my, to the elect lady in Second John and to my dear friend Gaius in Third John. So, and plus, the subject is about truth and love. Mainly truth here in Third John. Truth and love in Second John. But the, the content of the letters are almost the same as well as the style and so forth. There's no question. Nobody argues this. This is John that wrote it. Now, what about the date? This is a little bit more iffy. It's probably written about the same time as Second John. According to some, a lot of scholars, this is about 85 to 95, according to some people. But this is the type of, well, we'll talk a little bit later about the assumptions this date is based on, and we'll see that the date is not firm. But the NIV Study Bible says 85 to 95. The date doesn't really matter in this short letter. The elder, John calls himself, why? Either because he's an elder of the church at Ephesus or because he's an old man. And, of course, whether he's an old man depends on when the letter was written. So those two issues kind of intertwine a little bit. I'm just going to assume he's the elder of the church at Ephesus. Again, that's questionable, but church tradition has him leaving Patmos and stopping his apostolic labors and settling down as an elder at the church of Ephesus. So we're going to assume he's the elder at the church of Ephesus. Now, if it refers to John the elder man, John Gill says he would almost be 100 years old. And that's real dicey if you're going to say that. Here's the assumptions. First of all, you've got to, to say that You've got to say that Second John's date is about the same date as First John, assumption number one. Then you've got to say First John's date is the same date as the Gospel of John, assumption number two. Then you've got to assume the late date for the Gospel of John, which I don't believe. That's the third assumption. You've got assumptions on assumptions on assumptions. For the reason I believe John was written before 8070, the reasons are, are legion. There can be found in Ken Gentry's doctoral dissertation published as, the book, as a book called Before Jerusalem Fell. So you've got assumption on assumption on assumption. So the date is not clear. Now, John is addressing his dear friend Gaius. Now, that salutation, dear friend, that's a favorite term of John, as the NIV Study Bible says. He used the phrase, Ten times in First and Third John, dear friend. You know, most of the time it's brothers or beloved brothers. That's the way Paul taught. But John says, dear friend. I think that's pretty cool. I, I, I've always liked friendship. I never remember. I never. I will never forget C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. And one of the loves was friendship. You can't live without friends. I remember when I was single, thinking, Oh my goodness, if I get married, I won't have any more friends. I wonder what that's going to be like. It turns out, yeah, I've still got friends. Everybody needs friends, even after they get married. So Gaius was his dear friend. Now, who is this Gaius? Well, nobody knows for sure. I'm going to give you some options. I'm going to call the first option Paul's Gaius, Paul's host in Corinth, the Corinthian Gaius, Romans 16:23. Gaius, who is host to me in the whole church. Now, of course, Paul is writing from Corinth to Romans, so that would be the Gaius in Corinth. This Gaius greets you, Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greets you. So Gaius, Erastus, and Quartus was people at Corinth, and Gaius is writing, is uh, being uh, greeting, is greeting. So the question is, is maybe this is the same Gaius. 
1 Corinthians 1.14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So Gaius hosted the church that Paul was in. He hosted Paul personally to give him a place to stay. And Paul personally baptized him. Well, I don't think so. This is Paul's Gaius in Corinth. But John's Gaius is somewhere around Ephesus. If we assume John's writing from Ephesus, he probably is, according to D.A. Carson and Douglas Moo. Carson and Moose say there is consistent historical evidence that John moved to Ephesus at the time of the Jewish War, 66 through 70, although that evidence is not overwhelming. So there's some evidence that he was at Corinth. So you're going to see here, we don't really know who this Gaius is. The evidence is really sketchy. It doesn't really matter. Adam Clark says, here's some arguments in favor of, the, of Paul's Corinthian Gaius being the same as John's Ephesian Gaius. Both Gaiuses were very hospitable. And third John's Diotrephes, whom we'll meet in just a minute, he was similar to the ambitious and tyrannical opponents at Corinth. Well, folks, that's just a similarity. That doesn't prove anything. Some people have suggested this is Gaius of Macedonia, who worked with Paul, Acts 19.29. So the city was filled with confusion. This is Ephesus. And they rushed all together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. So Gaius from Macedonia traveled with Paul. Clark says this is different from the Gaius at Corinth because... Here's the quote, probably a different person from the proceeding for the description given of the Gaius who lived at Corinth and who was the host of the whole church there does not accord with the description of the Macedonian Gaius who in the very same year traveled with St. Paul and was with him at Ephesus. Well, I don't know how Clark knows that the little meager descriptions of the two different Gaiuses, the Macedonian Gaius and the Corinthian Gaius, differ all that much, but that's one speculation. Third speculation, Gaius of Derby, Acts 24. This is Paul on his way back from the third journey to Jerusalem. Paul was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonia, Gaius from Derby. So this is the Derbian Gaius. Clark says this, This cannot be the Corinthian Gaius, for the host of the church at Corinth would hardly leave that city to travel into Asia, and he is clearly distinguishable from the Macedonian Gaius by the epithet Derbios of Derby. Gaius of Derby, well, okay, well, who knows? NIV study Bible just punts and says this is a Christian in one of the churches of the province of Asia. Uh, you can't get any more general than that. So we don't know who Gaius is, but he was a friend of John. We know that. John says, I love you in the truth. Again, truth is one of the major themes of all the gospels, all the letters of John. Truth. Whole book of 1 John, you know, how do you know you're in the truth? Do you pass the moral test, the doctrinal test, the Holy Spirit test, the doctrinal test? Truth. I love you in the truth. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and light. And Gaius, you're in the truth, and you're in Jesus, and I'm in Jesus, and I'm in the truth. And so, therefore, I am in union with you, Gaius. Verses 2 through 4, 3 John. Dear friend, there's that expression again, dear friend. He repeats it. First, in the first verse, he says, to my dear friend, Gaius. And in verse 2, he says, dear friend, I pray that you may prosper in every way and be in good health physically, just as you are spiritually. For I was very glad when some brothers came and testified to your faithfulness to the truth, how you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So here we see that Gaius is in good shape spiritually. He's walking in the truth. He's in good health spiritually, he says in verse 2. Well, that's good news. Now, John says, I pray that you may prosper, Gaius. Now, that word prosper means to be successful. We often translate it, at least in our minds, as being as meaning to get rich. That's too narrow a translation because you can prosper in your spiritual life. 
you can prosper in all kinds of ways. In fact, a lot of times I pray for the prosperity of the gospel. I don't mean I pray that the gospel get rich. I mean I pray that the gospel be successful and spread all over the world. I pray that you may prosper in every way. Now, on the other hand, we don't want to get too narrow about it, uh, too too broad about it, and say it's just prosperity in general. It can't mean financial prosperity. No, it can mean financial prosperity, and actually it could be success in his health, too. I really think that's what he's talking about, prosper in every way and be in good health. If you run those two ideas together, it sounds like Dr. Vies was having some health problems, and John wanted him to be as healthy physically as he was spiritually. And that is something, you know, you always hear evangelicals used to, anyway, say, you know, we believe in the whole man. But, boy, you're talking about divine healing, and all of a sudden we believe in the spiritual man only, not the whole man, because we don't want to talk about faith healers and fakes and on and on and on they go about the excesses and 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 and, and thus doing that they avoid a, a a special and important truth is that our bodies affect our spirits if you're in bad health it's going to be hard to be on top of the world it is not a good thing to be sick if it is a good thing to be sick why do you go to the doctor oh but the sickness is teaching you something yeah i know bad things can teach you things but do we pray for bad things to come into people's lives Relationship problems, political disasters, natural disasters. Yeah, they can teach you something, but do you pray that they come on people? That's up to God to let that happen. The normal, a normal human being will try to stay in good health spiritually, as a normal Christian human being, and the normal human being in general will try to stay in good health. So we don't want to go, we don't want to react against the name it and claim it extremists, the Copenhagenites, and say, oh, yeah, I believe in doubt. I'm in the doubt and unbelief camp. I'm in the poverty and sickness camp. I believe in poverty. I believe in sickness. That's just stupid. But I'm telling you, it's a human nature to react and go too far to the other extreme. So, John prays that Gaius would be in good health. In verse 2, he says, I was very glad when some brothers came and testified to your faithfulness to the truth. Now, these some brothers, these were brothers that came from Gaius's church, wherever that was. We don't know where it was. And they came to Ephesus, I'm assuming Ephesus, where John was, and they testified to Gaius' faithfulness to the truth. And John is reflecting that testimony and saying, hot dog, Gaius, you're walking in the truth. Now, walking, of course, means living your life in the truth. It made John happy to see his spiritual children were doctrinally orthodox, as opposed to Diotrephes in verse 9, who was teaching them nonsense. We'll get to him in a minute. John mentioned this also to his addressees in 2 John 1, 4. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth. He's writing to the elect lady, whoever or whatever that was. Some of your children are walking in the truth. John loved doctrinal truth, and we should all love it. There's nothing sadder to see people get off into doctrinal extremism, cult philosophy, bad theology, secular progressivisms, secular philosophy that destroys people. They're not walking in the truth. They're walking in destruction, and they're heading for for destruction. Now, in verse 4, John says, I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John could be referring to Gaius' child, his spiritual child, that he perhaps led Gaius to the Lord. Or he could be referring to his spiritual mentee, his disciple Gaius, who he's discipled even though he didn't lead him to the Lord. He could be referring to other children in Gaius's church that are walking in the truth. I think he's talking about Gaius, my, in my humble opinion. We go to verse 5, 3 John 1. Dear friend, there's that expression again, dear friend. You are showing faithfulness by whatever you do for the brothers, especially when they are strangers. Remember, do means love in action, not in word and only or in tongue only, but in deed, in action. 
and conduct, not by thought or intention or emotion. You're showing faithfulness by whatever you do for the brothers as an example of loving the brothers. Remember the themes of John in all of his letters are love and truth, love and truth. Now, in particular here, it's the brothers who were missionaries, these brothers who went out for the sake of the name, as we'll see in the next verses. You showed faithfulness because you supported these brothers. The early church provided hospitality and support for missionaries, as the NIV study Bible says we should do the same today. Now, I'm thinking that maybe John mentioned this support for the brothers because he had just received brothers from Gaius's church, and he's thinking about supporting them, and, it, and that reminds him, oh, Gaius has done the same thing for these guys. He's supported them when they showed up at Gaius's church, and we're taking care of them now as they show up in the Ephesian church. And so it reminds him to thank Gaius for doing that, for supporting itinerant missionaries, especially when they are strangers that would be visited to the Gaius's church from other parts. Again, they had no motels back then, no Motel 6s, no Sheridans, and so they would have to put up strangers, and that's difficult. Think about that, too, in those, old, in those ancient houses, which were small. You didn't have ways of checking on the reliability of the person who came except word of mouth. Yeah, that could be, you know, hospitality was tough back then. 3 John 1, 6 through 8, they, these are the brothers from Gaius' church who've come to the Ephesian church. They have testified to your love in front of the church, in front of the Ephesian church. You will do well to send them out, to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, since they set out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from pagans. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we can be co-workers with the truth. Now, sending out these itinerant workers from Gaius' church would involve finding them passage if they were going to sail on a ship, or finding them transportation if they were going over land, giving them food to get from one spot to the next, maybe even giving them some currency so that to tide them over. But it was basically helping them to travel. Now, this idea that Gaius' brothers, these itinerant, I'm assuming that the brothers that John is referring to here, the brothers of Gaius, are referring to itinerant ministers who left Gaius's church, and they came to Ephesus and testified about what Gaius had done for them. Now, if this is so, what did this say about secret giving? You know, the brothers in Gaius's church gave the gave money to the itinerant workers, and then and they start talking about it. You know, whatever happened to the idea of don't let your left hand know what the right hand is doing? Well, here's a potential answer to that. The giving might have been done secretly, but the re recipients are free to talk about it. They're likely going to talk and they need to say, praise the people who sent us the money. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, this thing of finance can be embarrassing. And I'd be, be very careful about talking about what somebody gave me money. Well, God bless them. And in the New Testament, they didn't seem worried about it at all. So they testified to your love. And that love is probably a more specific love of giving money to itinerant ministers. They testify to your love in front of the church. That's the church at Ephesus. We're assuming you would do well to send them on their journey. That was the general method of financing itinerant workers in New Testament times. Now, contrast today. What do we do today? We generally give to large institutions impersonally who then write paychecks to the workers. We have a middleman. And I ask you this question, a thought question. Which way is the best? Is giver to getter the best way where you personally give money? to the itinerant workers so that you know them, you share in their struggles, you have a relationship with them, or is it better just to write an anonymous check to a big faceless bureaucracy? Well, I hope I didn't poison the well too much by the way I phrased that question, and I'll leave it to you. Now, nobody knows where these brothers came from. They set out for the sake of the name. It could have been Gaius' church. It could have been somewhere else. People don't know where itinerant ministers come from a lot of times. They're just wanderers in this world. 
They set out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from pagans. Now, the first question I would ask is, why would itinerant ministers of the gospel, why would they be taking money from pagans who don't believe? Why would this even come up as an issue? Well, here's what Jameson Fawcett Brown says to that problem. The pagans here that are mentioned here must mean the converts who were just made from the heathen. In other words, you go to some heathens, some pagans, you convert them to Christ, and then you say, please give us some money so we can continue. And John says, no, you didn't do that. It's not good to do that. And why is that not good? Because it makes it look like you're doing it for the money. Now, as we know, the early apostles never took money from those they ministered to. Paul didn't do it. He didn't do it at Philippi. He didn't do it at Thessalonica. He didn't do it at Corinth on his second journey. Now, he did take money from a previous church when he was at Thessalonica. He took money from the Philippians, and that's fine. Give money secretly, if you will, so that nobody knows about it so that you're not asking for it to the people you minister to. That is a principle. If the church would abide by that, how much scandal would be evolved? How many stumbling blocks would be, would be removed from cynical Americans who, and even cynical Christians who just look at these people and just mock them for raising money all the time? It's terrible. What the church today has done regarding sex and money, gold and girls, is disgraceful. It is absolutely disgraceful. It's a more than anybody wants to believe in Jesus now. That's why I'm a Calvinist, because I don't believe that if you just take somebody's free will, and then the first thing they're going to do is look at all the crap that's in the church and say, why would I want to do that? It's really a marketing problem. that It, it, it creates a marketing problem, the lack of financial and sexual integrity. I, I was watching Ray Comfort give a testimony as he witnessed to people on YouTube. And sure enough, somebody brought it up. And... Ray Comfort had a good answer. He says, God's going to judge them for their hypocrisy and their greed. That's, 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 that's their sin. Your sin is something different. He immediately got off of that. I thought it was very clever how he did it. They're sinning, and you're sinning too. But it's still an embarrassment. It ought to stop. Don't take money from the people you're ministering to, folks. Accept nothing from pagans. Accept nothing from Christians that you're ministering to. And certainly don't accept money from people that you convert. Now, there's another issue that comes to mind here. Accepting money from pagans. What does this say to churches who take money from rich people who don't believe? I remember so well my grandmother, who's long been with the Lord now for years, but when I was a young man, she would talk about her first Baptist church that she went to, and she thought about that church about the way a Muslim thinks about Mecca, about the same way that a Jew thinks about Jerusalem. And so she was very concerned about the way things operated in that church, and they were trying to build a new building, and some rich guy, you know, some prominent guy in my hometown gave a bunch of money to the church, and he wasn't any more believer than a donkey's rear end. And so my grandmother was saying, how can the church take money from this guy? This is a disgrace. And I remember thinking, well, his spin's just as good. I mean, what difference does it make? I was kind of taking that lackadaisical attitude. I noticed how, it, how wired up my grandmother was over this issue. Well, I, I think that she's right. She didn't mention this verse. But you don't take money from pagans, folks. Because money given from pagans always has strengths. And I'll guarantee you that Baptist church had to worry about saying something that might offend that guy. If he shacks up with his secretary, you going to preach against adultery when he's when you still got half a million dollars owed on the building and he's got and he's the one that's going to give you the money to pay off the mortgage. No, you're going to compromise your message. Don't take money from pagans. John is suggesting in contradistinction to the pagans. He says we Eight, therefore, we ought to support, in other words, not the pagans ought to support these men who went out for the sake of the name, but 
We ought to support such men. And to do that, you can become co-workers with the truth and see how he equates the gospel with the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth, reality. You want to be co-workers with that? Give an itinerant ministry money, and you will work it right along with him. Because itinerant people can't work. They, they, they're not low, settled in one place where they can get a job. They have to wander like nomads, and it's hard on them. So we need to give them money. We go to verse 9, 3 John 1. I wrote something to the church, John continues, but Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive us. John wrote something. What would that be? Perhaps it was a previous letter to Gaius' church, which is now lost, as the NIV Study Bible speculates. Perhaps it's the letter of Second John, as the NIV Study Bible speculates. This, of course, would mean that the chosen lady that Second John has written to is a church and not a woman, and, and it also presupposes presupposes that the church is Gaius's church. I don't think so, because I think that lady was a woman, in my humble opinion. But it's basically nobody knows what this, uh, when this letter was written to Gaius's church. The something that was mentioned is that the, the something that was written to Gaius's church was perhaps about the need of supporting itinerant workers, because that's the theme that we're talking about now. Jameson Fawcett Brown says that's probably what the communication was about. Gill says it's perhaps what it's about. So we can speculate that's what he was writing to the church. But unfortunately, the letter never got to the church, Gaius's church, because of Diotrephes. Now, this Diotrephes is an interesting character. He was clearly a church leader with dictatorial power in the church. And we know, if we understand proper church government, that the early churches were governed by consensual authority, not by one-man dictators, not by a plural elder dictatorship, but by the consensus of the entire congregation. I've got a good YouTube video on this called House Church Consensual Government. You can look it up on YouTube. And it goes into great detail. And that's important because it's not, it's sort of a minority view because churches, they, they loved, well, they like to organize like businesses. And then also when you have trouble in a church, which you always will have, it's just easier to deal with the trouble when you've got a strong man on the top says, stop it. Kind of like in China, you know. They have a strong man at the top, and they take care of criminals over there, boy. Of course, they also include within their net Christians and other innocent people who didn't do a darn thing wrong, and Uyghurs who hadn't done a darn thing wrong, Muslim Uyghurs who are perfectly innocent in their civic duties, and they round them up and put them in camps. But by golly, they also get the murderers and the rapists. So that's why churches go to that a lot of times. They have single, There's just a tendency to concentrate power in one man because... People like to have a king. They like to have somebody to take care of things for them, to be responsible for them, and to protect them. So, But that's not the way the early church was. The early church was plural elders leading by example. Now, we have lots of diatrophies around today in today's American church. But I'm telling you, if churches would use New Testament consensual congregational authority, there would be no problem with diatrophies. Because there's nothing worse than a church cult with these smarty-pants Preachers, these pastor popes run around telling everybody what to do. It's disgusting. Now, I know that most pastors are not like that. Most pastors are servant leaders, and God bless them. But there's a, it doesn't take many flies to ruin the ointment, my friends. So you see a diatrophies in your church, first try to stop him. If you can't stop him, get the Gehenna out of there. Take your money and your presence and go somewhere else. That's my free advice for today. Now, the NIV Study Bible says that Diotrephes must have had great power to be able to exclude people. He excluded John's messengers or John's letters from the church so that nobody could read them or hear the messengers. Now, that takes a lot of power. You've got to be a big shot to do that. And he also hindered 
he also put down the faction of the people in that in Gaius's church that wanted to hear John's apostles, John's messengers. So he had a lot of power. Now there is a question here about how Diotrephes wanted to take first place in everything. He wanted he perhaps wanted to take first place over the plural elders to be the first elder, or he could be wanted to have first place over the whole congregation. I suspect the latter, the whole congregation. He would not receive John. He refused either. He refused to read John's letter to Gaius's church, or he refused personal envoys from John to Gaius's church. Now think about that. This is amazing. One of Jesus's original disciples was rejected. A man who wrote five books of the New Testament, who wrote one of the four Gospels, a man who was originally with Jesus, traveled with Jesus, knew Jesus in the flesh personally. Oh no! Wrote the book of Revelation. Oh no! We're not going to listen to him. So that's what Diotrephes did. We go to verse 10, we'll find out he did more than that. This is why if I come, John's not sure he's going to come to Gaius' church, but if I come, I will remind him of the works he is doing, slandering us with malicious words, and he is not satisfied with that. He not only refuses to welcome the brothers himself, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. Now the brothers that John is talking about that, that Diotrephes is excluding could refer to these itinerant ministers that John's been talking about here. It could refer to the envoys from John who's, who's trying to communicate with the church, whoever. But he not only does that, but he stops those who want to receive these brothers, the people in the church. And then when they kick up a fuss, he expels them from the church. He kicks them out. Well, expelling them from the church, since when does one elder have the right to do that? Whatever happened to church discipline, Matthew 16 and 18, you take it to one you got a problem with somebody, you go to him privately, and then you take two or three, one or two brothers with you to have two or three witnesses to complain about the brother's actions, and if that still doesn't work, then you take it before the whole church. Not one elder, not one diatrophies, and he's slandering. He's not only refusing to let John's words into the church, he's going around saying malicious, slandering things about John. He's a real piece of work. Now, slandering John, it seems to me that it is usual that the most godly and inoffensive people are slandered the worst. I ask you to look on your experience through life and see the people who bad things are spoken about. And usually they just, well, maybe not usually, but often, let's say that, they are the nicest people in the world and people saying horrible things about them. And I think it's because they're too nice. They don't fight back. They don't defend. Now, there's nothing wrong with not fighting back if you're looking for revenge. We're not supposed to take revenge. But if it's self-defense, defense of the truth, Jesus defended himself originally at one of his trials, Jewish trials. Paul defended himself against false heretics all the time. John right here in this letter right here is defending himself against diatrophies. You know, if you sit and be bullied and let the truth be trampled on because you're sitting here mis misapplying Jesus' words about turning the other cheek, you come across as weak, ineffective, and people will bully you and they'll slander you. So I think that uh, explains a lot of times why godly and inoffensive people are slandered a lot. Here's what John Gill says about this quote. John, an apostle of Christ, the beloved disciple who was so harmless and inoffensive in his conversation, so kind and loving in his disposition and temper, so meek and humble in his deportment, and now in such an advanced age, if he was old, picking on an old man, kindly old gentleman, going to slander him, say he's a terrible guy. We go to Third John 1, verse 11. Dear friend, there's that phrase again, dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. 
Now, do not imitate what is evil. This is not just a general statement. He's referring in particular to diatrophies. According to Gil Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown, I think that's exactly what John's doing. Don't imitate this diatrophies, excluding godly Christians, not supporting brothers who've gone out for the sake of the name, kicking them, and then those who want to receive such brothers, kicking them out of the church. Don't do that. Do what's good. John Gill says this about the evil of diatrophies. Quote, his pride, ambition, love of preeminence, and tyrannical government in the church, and especially his hard-heartedness, cruelty, and inhospitality, in hospitality to the poor saints. Do what is good. In other words, imitate Jesus and imitate his apostles. You do that, you'll do what is good. First Corinthians 11, 1 through 2, Paul says this, not John, but Paul. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So Paul imitates Christ, we imitate Paul. We hold fast to the things that Paul did. We imitate what is good. Look at people who are good and imitate them. I remember when before I was married, I saw people with good marriage, Christian marriages, and I, I would imitate, I would, well, I wouldn't imitate them, but I would ask them how I could imitate them when I did get married. Also, when I needed, when I didn't have kids, I would talk to people with kids. How do you raise kids? I'm telling you, folks, there's a lot of stuff out there that's been learned by old saints and the Lord. You need to learn from them. Quit making, you know, when you're young, this is how I spell youth. Having been there at one time, this is how you spell youth. S-T-U-P-I-D. I'm serious. I made so many mistakes. I make mistakes now, of course, but compared to how many mistakes I made when I was young, the number of mistakes has shrunk. Maybe by half. Maybe by even more than that. Because you learn in the school of hard knocks. Well, avoid the hard knocks by looking at other people who've gone through the school of hard knocks and imitate their goodness, their wisdom. It will do you good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. John there is implying that his opponent, Diotrephes, has never seen God. He's not a believer. Fake Christian in the midst of Gaius' church. I don't know if he was or not, because you can have Christians that act the same way. All right, now John is going to move now from the bad guy, Diotrephes, to a good guy, Demetrius. This is verses 12, 13, and 14, and 15 of Third John. So we'll finish up the book as soon as we go through these verses. Demetrius has a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we also testify for him, and you know that our testimony is true. All right, well, who is this Demetrius, and why does John mention him right here? Well, he could be, let me give you some options. He could be Demas, because John Gill says Demas is a contraction of Demetrius. Well, I don't think so. Here's a summary of Demas's career in the New Testament, this is from gotquestions.org. Demas was a fellow worker with Paul, Philemians 124, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. So Demas was working with Paul at some point in Paul's ministry. He was with Paul during Paul's first imprisonment, Colossians 4.14. Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas send you greetings. Colossians was written during the first imprisonment. And perhaps Demas was, was Paul during Paul's second imprisonment at Rome, gotquestions.org mentioned some biblical evidence for this. I don't know what the biblical evidence is. Biblical evidence is. Wasn't mentioned. But then, probably during Paul's second imprisonment at Rome, Demas left Paul, 2 Timothy 4.10, because Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Now that left Paul, the original Greek, according to gotquestions.org, the original Greek implies Demas left Paul in the lurch. He didn't just leave him physically, left him in the lurch, in trouble, in prison. 
And some argue that because of Demas' horrible behavior, that Demas was never saved to begin with. But I doubt that. Why would Paul, the Apostle Paul use a non-believer as a fellow worker? It would show up pretty quickly that the guy was a fraud. So I believe he was a Christian who just finked out and became in love with the world and just walked away from Paul's bad circumstances. And you know that must have hurt Paul badly to have a close friend, a co-worker to, to betray you, basically. But I don't think that's who this is. This is an unknown Demetrius. And he could have been the guy that John sent from Ephesus with this letter. I think it is, because why would he talk about Demetrius having a good testimony unless he's trying to, to shore up the reputation of his letter bearer, especially since Diotrephes is trying to refuse letters from coming into the Gaius's church. So he sends Demetrius. He said, look, everybody knows this Demetrius is a good guy. Now, he could be a person that John recommends who's not in Gaius's church. Could be a guy in John's church. John sending Demetrius to Gaius's church. It doesn't really matter. Could be Demetrius had visited John coming from Gaius's church, and now John's sending him back and saying, but I don't think so. I think it's somebody that John knew probably carried the letter. Verse 13, 3 John 1, I have many things to write you, but I don't want to write to you with pen and ink. And, of course, here John is mentioning that old principle of communication, that face-to-face -face communication is much better than the flat, cold ways of communicating by writing. It's better to talk face-to-face. He said the same thing in his second letter, second John letter, chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Though I have many things to write to you, I don't want to do so with paper and ink. Instead, I hope to be with you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Joyful thing to talk face to face. Peace be with you, John says. This is not a prayer or a wish. The NIV Study Bible says this is rather a benedictory pronouncement. <laughs> benedictory pronouncement. In other words, I am now pronouncing that peace be upon you, Gaius. The friends send you greetings. Greet the friends by name. Now, this is confusing. The friends, there are two different groups of friends. The friends, number one, the friends send you greetings, are probably friends of John in the church at Ephesus. Some of John's particular friends at Ephesus, Gil says, or maybe it's the whole church at Ephesus. Could be Gaius's friends who somehow were visiting Ephesus. I don't think so. I think it's the friends of John at Ephesus. That's friends number one. The friends send you greetings. Now, friends number two, when John says, greet the friends by name, that's the second group of friends. And that would be Gaius's friends, because that's on the receiving end at Gaius's church. That could be the whole church where Gaius was, or it could be Gaius's particular friends, if John is trying to single them out. Or it could be John has some friends in his church that are visiting Gaius's church, but I don't think so. Now, I said this earlier, I think I'll say it again. Friends, that's a term that's seldom used in the New Testament. Brothers is the common word used, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown note. Paul always said brothers, dearly beloved brothers, 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 brothers. But John says friends, because our brothers are our friends. I love that word, friends. Nothing better than have good friends. Now, the gospel, excuse me, the letter of Third John ends with this phrase, greet the friends by name, period. There's no amen. At the end, John Gill says that Third John and James are the only epistles concluded without the word amen. That's a little factotum. I don't know of what value it is, but it's just an interesting fact that I bring to your attention. He says, greet them by name. Don't greet them as a group. Greet them individually because that shows more affection when you say, hi, Sam, hi, Dick, hi, John, hi, Susie, rather than hi, guys. Shows more affection. Greet them by name. Ladies and gentlemen, we have finished Third John. In our next audio, we will take up the book of Titus. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.